Hello, friends. It is episode 75 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. Well, according to my math, that's 25 away from the big 100. I'll be here before we know it. Uh, my name is Eric, and as always, I'm very happy to be joined by my awesome co-host, Michael Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing great, Eric. How are you? It's been a day, but this is always the <laughs> highlight of my day. But um, yeah, we're happy to geek out about some more great R content here. And we got a supersized episode for you all today because we have four highlights to talk about. So we're going to dive right into it. And this week's issue was curated by my good friend, Jonathan Carroll. And by the way, John, congratulations on your new role that you just uh, went into. Uh, best of luck with that. It's great to see you still involved in kind of the health industry. We can always share stories about that. But you also had great help from our, our weekly team members and all the contributors like you listening around the world. So first, we're going to get our teaching hat on for our first highlight. And as for me, one of the newer, at least to me, concepts that I've tried to adopt when I'm either trying to teach others about statistics or statistical computing with R is the idea of the, the audience or the students coming in with different learner personas. Now, you might have one persona who is someone who has got extensive experience with software development across multiple stacks, but maybe they're still getting up to speed in their knowledge of data science. Or others that have this extensive mathematical and statistics and data science training, but yet they have not really delved into programming very much. Well, being able, at least I've seen this from others very successful in this space, being able to adapt your training materials and your overall methodology to these personas for your particular session is hugely important for a successful experience for the students and hopefully an easier way for them to retain the knowledge. Well, Albert Rapp, who's been no stranger to these highlights this year, he recently led a workshop on teaching R to economics students who had little to no prior experience with programming of any language. And Albert has documented on his latest blog post a handful of important lessons he learned from this experience. And I resonate with all of them, but I'll give my um, a mention to a few of them that especially resonate with me. And then I'd like to hear your perspective on this, Mike, as well. But um, one of these that I definitely thought about first is that the idea of having students not just having the code that you are teaching to them ready, already written for them, ready to run, but actually letting them develop the code themselves via exercises or whatnot. Because a lot of times, this is how many will say that they actually learn by doing and actually able to retain that more so than if somebody literally just gives that to them. I've heard similar things where someone's in a meeting or whatnot, if they write or type it out, instead of just relying on somebody else's minutes afterwards, they actually have, you know, in their mind, the bigger takeaways from that discussion. And I think for coursework, it's very important to let the students feel like they are building something and actually having them practice the concept instead of just lecturing to them the whole time. I think exercises and hands-on experience is a, is a big help there. And then the other one that came to mind is that, especially in regards to data science and programming with R and data science, Getting started with visualizations 
is hugely important for that motivation. And in this case, Albert did it with ggplot2. And being able to have this concept where the students can directly see the impact of their code that they're developing with this new visual that's being produced by R, it's a great reinforcement of how just a little tweaks of the code can produce these amazing results. And Albert was also pleasantly surprised that his students are able to grasp the ggplot2 syntax in particular, um, especially for those that, again, did not have any real programming experience. ggplot2 does have its own way of doing things, right? With specifying aesthetics, specifying scales, but they're able to grasp it pretty well. So that's a uh, kudos to Albert for his uh, methods in teaching that. And then the last one that I am definitely thinking about, especially in light of what I'm about to do in July, is don't try to do too much. In other words, right size that curriculum to match the personas that you're trying to target with your training. And in this case, he actually had done trainings in the past for those that did have good knowledge of programming. And he was able to hammer through a lot of different concepts in those workshops. But here, he had to scale it back a little bit, but that didn't deter from the experience. In fact, I think it helped the students feel even more you know, motivated. And again, I'm just speculating here, but they probably gave them a, a better feeling of being reassured that they would have the capacity to follow through with the different topics and have something to achieve towards the end. And I know sometimes I'm the type that wants to have like everything prepared to having like backup plans that things don't work, but sometimes just taking a step back, finding the most important parts and really nailing those is probably a great way to do effective training. There's obviously much more to the post, but um, what are your thoughts, Mike, on what Albert learned in his uh, workshop teaching here? Well, I saw this one come across Twitter last week in a tweet thread that Albert put together. And I'm glad to see that he memorialized that thread into a nice blog post, uh, both to provide us with a deeper dive and to memorialize it for when Twitter itself bursts into flames in the coming months. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But I totally agree with you. Um, I don't do a ton of teaching. I know there's a great art uh, instructor community out there. And I do find that when I do teach, doing less is one of the toughest things for me personally um, when teaching beginners. And it's something that Albert ran into as well. You know, I'm endlessly fascinated just being a nerd by diving down little rabbit holes that exist everywhere in R. And you know how passionate I am about bringing in software engineering best practices into your R code, but you can't introduce that stuff at the beginning of a learner's journey. You have to get them excited about what you can do in R and forget about the nitty gritty details of exactly how it all works under the hood, at least in the beginning, I think. And it's interesting to note that he thought that starting out with ggplot and visualization was the way to go because the R for DS book itself, um, I think Hadley intentionally writes, and this is the way that the book starts, uh, that they led off with building a ggplot because they thought that that was the best way to get the reader who might be a new learner to buy in to R. Um, so it sounds like we have some more evidence based upon Albert's lessons uh, for starting with ggplot when teaching beginners. He also provides a really nifty tip for highlighting specific points on a scatter plot with dplyr slice function um, that's implemented with some really legible code for new learners to grasp why it worked the way it did. 
And one of the tricky things I think in teaching anyone R is that there are many ways to do the same thing. Uh, and Albert highlights the way that we can use the, the dollar sign operand, dplyr's pull function, and square brackets to access the data in a specific column of a data frame. That's confusing to a new beginner. Um, personally, I learned base R techniques first and learned the tidyverse years later, but Albert advocates for only choosing one way to show the learners how to do a particular task. It advocates for the tidyverse and try to make it the way that they will most likely encounter when they're out in the wild after they leave your class. And lastly, he does also advocate for the use of pipes so that you don't have to repeat the data argument in your dplyr functions, allowing the user to focus on, I think, the more important parts of what those functions do and build that sort of dplyr recipe that I think is a lot more intuitive to, to new learners. So really appreciate Albert putting together the lessons uh, that he learned from teaching. I think that's something you know we talk about that folks don't do enough of is uh, putting the things that we learned the hard way out there in blog posts for others to uh, be able to read and to be able to help them have a little easier time in their journey. You bet. And Albert, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed a lot of his posts lately, but this is very approachable and, and you're right. We need, we need more of this, uh, you know, the, the cliche is shared learning, but it's like sharing the experience. It's not just about the nuts and bolts of what happened. It's really the things that we can learn from and the ways that, we can improve our, our methods. And I've, I admit, I probably in the past struggle with trying to do a bit too much in my previous workshops that I've led. And that's why I'm trying to really right size the approach I do in a, in a few months with uh, our studio conference, shiny uh, workshop. But um, seeing this was a good time for me as I begin to scope out the uh, material and not feel completely overwhelmed at the same time. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of feeling uh, overwhelmed, um, I know I can feel overwhelmed sometimes when I get a new data analysis project and I'm getting a data file that I would ideally be able to trust that was created, you know, you might say the right way that there's been, you know, good checks that have been made on the sanity of that file or the, the fields it's collecting. And I, I try to be optimistic about it, but I've had some major disasters of this years ago. Before we get to this highlight, I'll, I'll share a story where I was um, doing a lot of new biomarker analyses as part of my day job many years ago. And we got data from a vendor who assured us that the data coming in was generated from an instrument. And then it went through multiple peer reviews to make sure that it was good quality that we could import this in whatever analysis package we were using and get out of our way. Nope, that doesn't happen. Many, many rows were simply nonsense in terms of their format. And the worst, they were often locked into horrific Excel spreadsheets. But even the cases where I got CSVs, they did not catch some little, sometimes a lot of errors in formatting errors and values that we were not expecting and not giving us like a nice data dictionary to troubleshoot from. So I quickly learned, and I've now gained a lot of respect for anyone that has to import messy data sets routinely, which leads to our next highlight coming to us from David Lucy, uh, director of data and research for classical charter schools in New York, where he authors a blog post on the approaches he took to import a massive seven gigabyte CSV data file 
in dealing with some pretty messy individual rows via some neat integrations with not only R, but the always reliable command line. Now with large files like this, one of the leading packages in this space that we've been hearing about in other um, areas or highlights is the data.table package. Um, in particular, one of its most uh, you know, well-known features is the fread function, which can import very large CSVs very efficiently. So of course, that's a great approach to take for tackling this data file the first time, but David encounters some rather cryptic errors about byte size of character strings, which would definitely put me as a stop in my tracks if I'm, in, if I'm trying to use that. But what I did not know until reading this post is that one nice feature of the fread function is having an optional way to hook into a command line utility or command line in general for dealing with errors in this importing process. With open source, there's always choice. And David outlines in the rest of this post uh, about four or five choices for these command line utilities to deal with these messy CSVs. Some of which performed very well, some of which took a long time. They each kind of did something a little differently, but he exhaustively looks at the trade-offs of each of these and then ends up with one of the utilities that I believe was written in Rust, a language that's getting a lot of praise in the um, dev community for being performant with advantages like with C++, with some other safeguards in front of it. I do not code in Rust, but I hear good things about it. But again, the nugget for me was knowing that things like fread can kind of get that little extra help from the command line utility when you need it. Hopefully you never need it, but it's nice to know it's there. And so the rest of the post is a pretty fascinating read into like the, the trials and tribulations that David went through to try out the finding the benefits and trade-offs of each of these additional um, add-ons to his importing function. So it's definitely another kind of tale from the from the crypt almost of data importing nightmares. Um, but certainly fun things to learn about there. Um, what did you uh, glean from this post, Mike? I think we could probably easily turn this episode into a data therapy session if we want to. <laughs> Our corrupt flat files are an issue I think everybody's run into in the past. And let me be the first to share my overall experience. Not fun. Not fun at all. Um, a common issue is having, I think, a row or a couple of rows scattered around that have the wrong number of columns, which I think is what David was, was running into in his analysis, uh, you know, probably because the data in that row should not be there or a delimiter was missing or there's an extra delimiter. I know that data.table and the reader package uh, both do a really good job, in my experience, of actually articulating where these errors occur in the file. I think they literally both point out the rows where it found corrupt data and reader even creates a separate neat data frame, I think, in your global environment that articulates the issues found. But I haven't run into David's issue where you have corrupt data and the data appears to be so large that you can't even get the function to articulate where the issues lie. Right. But he references uh, Jeroen Jansen's book, Data Science at the Command Line, as a critical resource in his journey to a solution in this blog post. And I'll second that resource uh, as a fantastic book. And, and whether we like it or not, if you spend enough time doing data science, you'll inevitably have to deal with the command line at some point. So we might as well embrace it, right? But 
David uses a combination of command line tools, which he shows uh, how to install and R packages to finally weed out the corrupt data from his giant uh, CSV file and start analyzing the data he's after. So this story does have a happy ending. Yes, and sometimes it's very hard to get to that last step. There are approaches when our our initial pass at it just simply will not pan out, but it also makes me appreciate even more when I'm able to get data that's machine generated. Now, sometimes it's not as easy to look at from like a plain eye perspective, but usually when that happens, you can avoid about 99% of the issues when humans or some kind of other manual uh, mechanism is used to record these. Yes, we, we could spend an entire episode on more of our horror stories of importing these or dealing with customers that just dump this on us and then they expect us to be the magical wizards that fix everything. Give me an API to the database, not the flat file. Thank you. Yes, there's a certain team that I should tell that to. Ooh, did I say that out loud? Oh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. Um, Data therapy. Hopefully you don't need a lot of therapy for our next highlight. Um, actually, one of the very novel statistical methodologies that R is extremely proficient in and I speak to this from working with many in my group that specialize in this, is Bayesian analyses. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, but Mike, why don't you take us through what you read about on uh, this highlight about Bayesian analyses made easy in R? Yeah, Olivier Jimenez, who's a senior scientist in a French research center for ecology, wrote this article, Bayesian Analyses Made Easy. I have been diving headfirst into Bayesian modeling lately. It's, it's not my background, but I've been consuming as much content as I can to try to learn some more about it, including a fellow podcast I'll give a shout out to called Learning Bayesian Statistics, which I highly recommend for any Bayesians or wannabe Bayesians like myself out there. Um, in fact, I just listened to an episode with the author of the BRMS pack, R package, Paul Berkner which is the package that gets highlighted in this blog post. Um, so another one of my favorite resources for learning Bayes so far, if anybody cares about my journey, has been the phenomenal Bayes Rules book by Alicia Johnson, Miles Ott, and Mine Dochu, which is available both online and in print. Um, so for those who do Bayesian analysis on a regular basis, you know that there are a few different R packages out there that each have their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, for the most part, I think the main difference between these packages is how much quote unquote control you have over the models and the priors, um, you know, for building more sophisticated models versus how much sort of gets abstracted away from the user for ease of use in building maybe less sophisticated models. One package that I think sort of sits right in the middle of having a pretty clean syntax, but good control over your model specs is the BRMS package. Um, other alternatives include the RSTAN family of packages, which are an interface into the STAN probabilistic programming language, the R2JAGS package, which is an interface into the JAGS probabilistic programming language, and LME4. And these are the three different packages that Olivier uses in his blog post to do a fantastic job comparing uh, and contrasting these packages by building the same Bayesian model using each of the three different packages and comparing the results, as well as highlighting you know, the strengths and weaknesses of each package. 
He also shows some really nice ways to visualize the posterior distributions that you get out of each model using a package I wasn't familiar with, literally called Posterior. So phenomenal blog if you're like me, uh, either just stepping into Bayes or if you know that there is a Bayesian package that you're using right now, but you know that there's a couple others and you want to understand sort of the benefits and drawbacks of using uh, these different packages and, and maybe the way that they go about building models syntactically and the differences between those uh, to figure out what might fit your workflow the best. So great job. Um, awesome to see some diversity in our uh, highlights this week and, and bring in, in a little base. Yeah. And I've been, I've been exposed to some of the um, more traditional packages in this space, like Jags in particular, um, that at the day job, we have a few apps or, or um, internal packages that are literally built upon that. Um, and I've always been kind of keeping a peripheral eye on things like um, Stan and and um, was it BRMS um, as well as a great perhaps alternative that might either be more performant or maybe it's a little easier to extract results out of. So I think having this, in essence, is, reads to me kind of like a cookbook like reference where you can look at the same example multiple ways and you can make the call yourself um, where you want to put your investment in terms of coding up these um, examples for your projects with a Bayesian flavor. Um, one thing that I hope gets easier in the future with respect to these packages is maybe, maybe I'm too greedy here, but getting as much performance out of it as we can get. Cause I know things like convergence and generating the posterior probabilities can be a quite uh, time consuming task of all the MCMC chains and the like. Um, it, I know I've had a, a very senior leader uh, many years ago may almost force me to make my apps generate models in one minute or less. Now, I'm not sure if that's quite feasible with Bayesian framework. So I'm always kind of curious what, what's happening um, with the, the newer age of these packages that kind of eke out that performance so you can rapidly iterate, especially if you're getting questions from leadership on trade-offs and such. Yeah, I'm always a little leery about building models on the fly yeah. within an app. Anyways, just because there's, you know, so, so much hands-on uh, in the code, right. in the weeds, things you have to be aware of if you're building a model in general in terms of diagnostics and things like that and just edge cases in the data. So I, I'll, I'll talk to that senior leader, Eric, if you need me to. You're on my speed dial, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of speed, if you want to speed up your insights into another um, concept that can definitely be a little, you might say, uh, trippy for those that are new to R, the idea of non-standard evaluation. Well, our last highlight for today will definitely give you some insights into how you might approach that. So. I have seen, you know, a few different tutorials in the past about, you know, leveraging what's called tidy evaluation in the R ecosystem. In particular, this has come from packages like Rlang by RStudio and the like. Um, when you look at that syntax, if you don't have any previous exposure to metaprogramming or this not standard evaluation paradigm, it's going to look really, really strange two exclamation points, three exclamation points. What the heck is going on here? Well, Lucas Groniger, who I believe is a data scientist, 
has written a an approachable, um, straight to the point blog post on, you know, leveraging or his learning of how non-standard evaluation works in R with this kind of newer newer take on it with the Rlang utilities. And I think it's a nice companion to what you might say are the more standard references in this space, like the chapters in Advanced R or the references that Rlang itself provides in the vignette. It's kind of a nice way to show from a data exploration perspective where the, the benefits of using things like quasi-quotation and how dplyr is magically able to find that particular variable you want to subset or filter upon you it's one of those things where again if you're new to it, you're probably gonna have to read it through a couple times and i would say ideally like we led like we talked about in the very first highlight practice with it once you practice with it it starts to start to seep in you know slowly but surely i will never say i'm a master at this yet but I at least think that Lucas's uh, blog post here is a good approachable way to kind of get started and give you kind of nice lead-ins to those other references that go really heavy into the nuts and bolts on this. Um, what do you think about non-standard evaluation, Mike? Is it trippy for you too? Always tricky. And it's something that I always need the documentation on one screen for while I write my R code on the other screen. I have read the programming vignette. It's, the vignette is called programming, literally from dplyr more times than I'm willing to admit. Um, and if you're starting to get into non-standard evaluation, that might be a great place to start as well, that vignette. Um, I know that this is a maturing ecosystem as well. And the way that you may have done non-standard evaluation a couple of years ago is, is likely being slowly deprecated in favor of some new tidy evaluation syntax uh, options. Most recently, I think we were given the double curly braces for tidy selection of variable names which I, I guess has been coined as the double stash, which probably replaces a lot of the workflows where you first need to in quote or convert a function input into a symbol mm -hmm. and then use the double exclamation bang bang operand to evaluate the symbol. Um, one thing that I learned from Lucas's post was that you can use a single element like uh, double curly braces with vars in it, it inside the double stash to you know, for example, select multiple column names with just a single function argument. Uh, if you don't know what I mean, check out the blog post. It's hard to articulate uh, on, on a uh, podcast episode, but imagine just having uh, a function argument just called vars that allows you to select multiple, uh, allows you to call multiple columns in a data frame for doing something like dplyr select. So, so really nice to just be able to do that with a single argument. I also learned about the tidy select uh, function called eval underscore select, uh, which can allow you to build your own custom function that can take a tidy selection adjective like starts with as a function argument to select you know, particular columns that start with uh, something. Uh, these blogs that compare multiple ways of accomplishing the same thing are always my favorite blogs. And maybe in a very full circle way, the reason why I have trouble teaching R because it is so hard to choose just one method. <laughs> I totally get that. And sometimes I, I have these favorite methods that in some situations will apply everywhere, but then there are others where I'm like, I, I know there's more than one way to do this. I don't know if this is the best way to teach for a certain, like, a, like we talked about in the beginning, a certain persona that I'm targeting for that particular approach. But, you know, 
it, it is good to have this as another reference in this space. And as I start to build more internal packages that depend on non-standard evaluation and tidy evaluation, I'm not sure if I'll ever get to the point where I don't have that reference on the other side of the screen. It's not intuitive to me yet. Maybe it doesn't have to be. If I don't use it every day, then why force it? Certainly, it, it makes me think back to some of the old code I used to do that did the old eval parse text equal paradigm from my very, very early days of R and remembering how painful it was to debug when that thing didn't go right. I have to give some credit to the Arlang authors, Lionel Henry and, and others at our studio for at least trying to make more informative error messages when things go bad. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, I would say there's still a ways to go here, but having that enhanced debugging experience, I think will help adoption of this technique even more so. I totally agree. I totally agree. Were there uh, any, I don't know if you checked out any of the other highlights from this week that were excellent, but um, I was reading one called Getting Started with Python Using R and Reticulate. Oh, good one. Which in the past I have explored uh, doing, you know, using Reticulate and bouncing between R and Python in chunks within an R markdown, uh, R markdown file. But it looks like that was, that was a couple of years ago, I think, when it was just becoming uh, possible to do so. And I think that there are you know, quite a few updates since then that make our lives a little bit easier with the Reticulate package. So if you are looking to dive back into that capability, uh, like I am, I would definitely check out um, our weekly for that blog post called Getting Started with Python Using R and Reticulate. Anything you saw, Eric? Yeah, that's a great find. Um, one tutorial I saw in the tutorial section that's right up my container kick that I'm on these days is wrapping the NL Mix R package in a Docker container so that somebody that's interested in running that package can simply download that Docker image, boot up a container, have our studio up and running right there with the package installed and ready to go with every dependency, every other system utility already installed for it. Um, I've been I've been on record multiple venues and saying that my new um, container setup for all my dev projects in the open source space have given me so much more flexibility and freedom to try out new things and keep my host system pristine for things like podcasting and streaming because um, <laughs> that is so important to me. <laughs> but it's also the ability of getting a step closer to that reproducible environment. And if long as somebody has Docker available, they could simply pull my dev environment down and they can pick up right where I left off or we can you know, do pair programming or something and I don't have to worry about them being on Windows or Mac and having their set of compilers be different. It's a standard environment. So I'm, I'm impressed that yeah, the NL Mixer um, project has this nice way of uh, putting their putting their package into a container so that you can all experience it the way that they developed it intended to be. So, I will definitely be checking that out. Good find. Yeah, well, there's always a bunch of those in our weekly. Every issue is this, and this one definitely has many more than what we touched on here. And where can you find that? Well, that's easy. It's rweekly.org. That better be bookmarked in your notes by now. Um, we've been doing 75 episodes about this. Ah, I kid, I kid. Um, but we also very much 
appreciative of all your uh, contributions around the world. We definitely rely on your pull requests and replying to us on Twitter for our, the links that you're finding that can benefit the community. And geez, I believe I'm actually the curator for this upcoming issue. So I'll be pulling double duty this time. So I could definitely use the help, in, in, especially of other things happening this week. So definitely head over to the uh, GitHub repository for our weekly, where you'll see the draft of the upcoming issue. Feel free to send a pull request for any uh, links you'd like to share with the broader community. And believe me, I will be watching that closely so we can get your recommendations in there. But um, yeah, that'll wrap up episode 75. That's a great number. We're going to trug along the rest of the way. And we'll be back with another batch of our weekly highlights next week. <laughs>